0: We want to remind our listeners that this program is for informational and educational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional veterinary medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The Animal Medical Center does not recommend or endorse any products or services advertised by SiriusXM. Welcome to Ask the Vet with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. This is the place to talk about your pets and get advice from the top veterinarian from the Animal Medical Center in NYC. Hear from the leading authorities on animals and give us a call to ask your questions. Now, here's your host, Dr. Ann Hohenhaus.
1: Hello, and welcome to Ask the Vet, and happy 2022 to all my listeners. I hope everyone had a wonderful and safe holiday, and I'm really glad that you can join me today on Ask the Vet here on Sirius Stars Channel 109. I'm Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. I'm your host for Ask the Vet this month and every month. I'm a board-certified internal medicine and oncology specialist at the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center in New York City, the largest not-for-profit animal hospital in the world. And thanks to our partner with Sirius XM Radio, Ask the Vet is also a podcast, and you can download the podcast on any major podcast platform. At the Animal Medical Center, we keep families together by providing the absolute best care for pets. And if you're looking for information about pet health and have a question about your pet, simply call and leave me a message on our toll-free voicemail. Now, if you don't have a pen, I'll give this number again later in the show. I'll answer your questions if you call and leave a message at 866-993-8267, and I'll get to listener calls later on in this show. But I've got a lot of good information to cover, so let's go to our Trending Animal of the Month. It's
0: time for the Internet's Most Talked About Animal.
1: This is an amazing story and a happy story out of the devastation from the swath of tornadoes in the Midwest just before Christmas. Nine days after a deadly tornado ripped through Mayfield, Kentucky, Maddox, a black cat, was miraculously found alive, buried under rubble. The cat's owner, Hoot Gibson, and his family had pretty much given up hope of finding their cat after searching for a few days. But on the ninth day, when Hoot went back to the building to clean up some more, he thought he heard a meow. And who said, when I heard it, I said his name and I heard meow again. And I knew it was Maddox and my knees got weak and my chest tightened up and I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I was just blown away. I'm blown away too. With the help of two other people at the site, who sifted through the wreckage and sure enough, they found Maddox the cat uninjured, but in a pocket of, of rubble underneath rocks. Maddox went to the vet and got a clean bill of health after he ate three bowls of food and drank a whole bowl of water. And Maddox is now home with Hoot Gibson and his family and has a happy forever after coming up. Just Google Maddox, that's M-A-D-I-X, the black cat who survived the Kentucky tornado for more information and amazing photos. I'm so happy to welcome my colleague and fellow Cornellian, Dr. Daniel Semino. He's a third-year resident at the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center, and he's part of our crack neurology team. Dr. Semino obtained his DVM degree from Cornell University, then completed a one-year internship at AMC, and now is working towards board certification in neurology and neurosurgery. Neurology is a unique specialty. They are part of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine, but they have a large component of surgical training, and we'll get Dr. Semino to talk about that. Dr. Semino is our featured speaker at the next AMC Den, uh, animal Animal Health Education event. And he's going to talk about what you need to know about intervertebral disc disease, sometimes called IVDD. It's a common spinal disease of dogs. The event will be held online January 12th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And attendance is free, but you must register so that you can get the Zoom link. I'll provide more information later on in the program about how to do that. Welcome, Dr. Semino. I'm so happy you can join us today on Ask the Vet.
2: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
1: So, let's jump right in and talk about intervertebral disc disease. Although it's common, it can be really frightening for owners. Can you talk a little bit about intervertebral disc disease, what it is, what the symptoms are, how would owners recognize this in their pet?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's probably one of the most common things uh, we as veterinary neurologists deal with on a day-to-day basis. So the way I always explain it is um, it's a slip disc. People have typically heard of that term um, for themselves oftentimes. A lot of times in humans, it ends up being a very painful process, sometimes leading to uh, mild paralysis or weakness of the limbs as well. So it's a very similar process in pets. Essentially what it is, is the intervertebral discs are little shock absorbers. So they live between the vertebrae, which are the bones that house and encase the spinal cord. Spinal cord is your major roadway for messages to come from your brain and into your limbs. And so what can happen when those discs slip or they've been degenerating for a while, Uh, it can cut off that message. And so what you'll see clinically in these pets is signs of pain. You can have signs of weakness in the limbs uh, up into including total paralysis of the limbs and loss of sensation to the limbs. And so it's a disease process that, you know, we're, we're constantly battling and there's various ways of treating it um and it can vary and 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 depend on how they present so those are some of the common things that the pet owners will look for
1: so where does the disc disc slip to to?
2: it's a good question so we think about dogs um they are unlike us they are not standing up straight so if you think about their spine in a horizontal pathway this the disc itself lives right below the spinal cord um, in a human, it would live right in front of it. And so when it quote unquote slips, it slips right into the spinal cord itself, it goes upwards. And so there's only limited space in the vertebrae. There's, it's, think of it as a, a walled off tunnel. And there's not room for that spinal cord to move when that disc slips. So you get compression of the spinal cord, a smush, if you will. Uh, and also, when it slips out, it comes out pretty fast, and so it kind of it punches the spinal cord, causing a bruise as well.
1: Ooh, that sounds bad. So, are there certain breeds of dogs that are more likely to be affected by intervertebral disc disease?
2: So, yeah, it's a it's a great question as far as what what breeds specifically are affected. Uh, typically, we talk about what we call chondrodystrophic. Breeds. It's a big fancy term um, to talk about some of our shorter legged, long back uh, doggies. So, classic breed we talk about are dachshunds. Uh, One of the more classic and probably common pets that I'm doing um, treating intervertebral disc disease in now, especially in New York City, are French bulldogs. Uh, so they're very commonly affected as well, and we see it a lot in Shih Tzus also. So, so those dogs with shorter legs, compact uh, bodies, but then that long back.
1: And what about cats? Do cats ever get yeah. intervertebral disc disease?
2: Absolutely, it's much less common, absolutely less common, but cats will will get it. Uh, cats have a little bit of a caveat, caveat, if you will, um, where the intervertebral discs that herniate or slip quote unquote, tend to be more towards the back of the animal. So more towards their rump and their
1: tail. And does that change how they look then when the disc slips?
2: Yep. Yep. So what you'll see in a cat and things to look for, and actually a common presenting sign is uh, my cat's tail won't work. It's limp. My, my cat's tail won't, they're usually perk up. They have loss of balance Um, Sometimes they can have a little bit of incontinence, loss of control of their of their bladder and their bowels as well, which can happen to pets as well uh, to dogs. Sorry, as well. It's just not uh, it's not as common.
1: So that's interesting, because if I heard of a cat with a limp tail, I would have thought it had some tail pull injury, you know, where the tail got run over by a vehicle and pulled the tail.
2: Absolutely. That's that's the other main uh, differential, the other possibility um, is that in that we try to rule out. So what helps us with that is if there is a history where, yeah, the cat was outside, it had some trauma, or we were closing the door as the cat left the house or got caught in the window, um, you can take x-rays for cats and see if there is a, is, a, is a tail trauma. But if everything else is checking out, you have to be suspicious of a disc as well.
1: So then do you use x-rays to diagnose a disc slip?
2: Typically not. Um, that, that case with the cats is more unique uh, in that we can do that to try to rule out the tail pool. But I would say that we, we tend to recommend against it uh, for dogs. Purpose, uh, reason being why we recommend against it is because x-rays are very good at showing you bony uh, tissues. And when a disc herniates, it can have some mineral-like characteristics, which is what bone is. Uh, But you can't say for sure that's the problem. So oftentimes we get an x-ray and it's read out as, yes, there's multiple degenerative discs in this spine, but I can't tell you with certainty that they're causing compression of the spinal cord and or where they're causing compression. Because oftentimes those pets who have a predisposition like dachshunds and french bulldogs will have multiple previous slip discs that have healed but they'll show up on an x-ray so really it, what we need is an mri uh, an mri shows a uh, very good soft tissue clarity so i can see more so of what disc herniated if a pet needs surgery which we'll talk about a little bit more later i can tell you how extensive that surgery is, and I can give you a little bit more information on prognosis and what the chances are of recovery.
1: All from one MRI?
2: Yes, all from one MRI. It tells a lot of information.
1: So then if you diagnose a slip disc with an MRI, what, what are the treatment options for my dog?
2: Absolutely, so big categories. Medical management, where we opt not for surgery. We're always hoping that's the case. We'd like to avoid surgery as much as we can. Um, and then surgery is the other big option. So generally how severe a pet's signs are when they present is going to determine what treatment option we choose.
1: And what how, how would an owner know their pet has severe signs?
2: Yeah. So that's a very good question. So uh, they're generally, so uh, like I chatted about before, generally ranges from just pain. So a pet can have just pain, which can you kind of have to piece out where it's coming from. So you definitely need an exam with a vet to know, to paralysis. So if a pet is having our general black and white determining factor on when we're choosing surgery for a pet is if they can support their weight or not. So if a pet is strongly supporting their weight, maybe a little bit wobbly, maybe their limbs are a little bit out of control, but they can walk across the floor, they can turn around, they can even try to posture those are times where we're saying let's choose medical management let's treat your pain and let's strictly strictly bed rest them so the purpose of bed rest and, and generally we're recommending either a crate or a baby gated area for them is to allow the body itself to heal so that disc herniates it's smushing the spinal cord and then over time the body can actually wrap some uh, fibroblasts and fibrous tissue sink that slip disc down, and also can send in some white blood cells and chew it up a bit too. So it never heals a hundred percent what it was before, but certainly pets can get back to normal function. Uh, if they cannot support their own weight, we're pretty quick to recommend surgery because they can certainly continue to decline and get to a point where they never will recover.
1: So. Who hates medical management more? The dog who's in the crate for six <laughs> weeks or the owner who has to crate the dog for six weeks?
2: Probably the owner most of the time. <laughs>
1: because... uh, that, owners hate that treatment. Yes. Rested yes. for six, they don't yes. want, what is, why no. do they not want to rest their pet?
2: I think it's tough. It's tough to see your, your pet who's, because usually these are active dogs. They're, they're quick, they're running around, they're jumping, they're happy. And then they just go in a crate and, and I'm telling them, I would say that I recommend the four to six weeks because I want minimum three weeks. So if an owner (laughs) does half.
1: Oh, you shouldn't be answering this live. You just spoiled it. No one is going to (laughs) rest their pet ever again.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's tough. It's tough. It's one of the hardest things I I tell people. And, and that's what I always say in my, in my uh, appointments, as I say, this is the treatment, the, the, Crate rest is the medical treatment. The medications are just to make sure they're comfortable. They're not gonna. They're not gonna help that disc go back to its normal spot.
1: So, you mentioned that intervertebral disc disease was one of the most common neurologic diagnoses that veterinary neurologists make. What are the other ones?
2: Yeah, I, I would say. Disc disease and seizures are are kind of bread and butter, what we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. In the category of seizures, um, some of the more common things we're seeing are infectious meningitis, where there's an an infection in the brain causing that seizure. You can have autoimmune meningitis. uh, That's autoimmune attack of your brain cells. And then you can also have cancerous processes. The other thing is just simply what we call idiopathic epilepsy, where a pet has a seizure disorder, but their brain's totally normal and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with them systemically. And that can be genetic. So those are probably the most common things we're seeing. I, I think the other other more common things we see are strokes see a lot of pets with strokes uh, to their brainstem and their brain, and a lot of um, vestibular or balance issues as well.
1: So are the causes of stroke in animals similar to those in people?
2: I believe they are to a degree. So we always, I try to always, I I take this with a a grain of salt because I do my human research, but I'm probably behind the times. Uh but typically um in humans, more commonly you will get what's called a hemorrhagic stroke or a bleeding stroke where your loss of blood flow to the brain. Pets tend to get more of a either clogging disease due to a clot that clogged that blood vessel that supplied the tissue, which is what a stroke is, or they can have what's called a vasospasm, where that, that blood vessel spasmed close for a certain amount of time but enough time where the piece of tissue the brain lobe or whatever it was that was supplied by the vessel could not get oxygenation so a lot of times for pets we see stroke more commonly when some other systemic disease is going on whether they have chronic kidney disease they have issues in their steroid production. They have high blood pressure. These are all some common reasons why they can have strokes, which I I believe are also very similar in humans.
1: So you've listed the diseases that neurologists see. How would a pet owner know if their pet has a neurologic condition um, and they should seek out a specialist like you?
2: Yeah, it's it's a very good question. And there's such a variety of presentations for neurologic disease because it depends on what portion of your body's affected. If it's your spinal cord in the middle of your back, your hind limbs won't work, the rest of the body will work. I would say that generally a a catch-all term as far as what owners can look for is dysfunction. So my pet cannot hold their head up, their head is to the left they seem to be have trouble controlling their body a lot of times when there is disease in the neurologic system there is dysfunction and so in that holds true for every portion of the neurologic system. If my neck spinal cord's affected, all four limbs will have lack of control. If my brain's affected, my mentation's going to be off. I'm not going to recognize my environment. I'm going to circle. Um, so, So anytime you feel like your pet is just acting off and has the loss of control, certainly be suspicious.
1: So dysfunction means their normal functioning processes are not happening.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
1: And when an owner sees dysfunction like you've described is it an emergency or or when is a neurologic condition an emergency?
2: That's also a good question and and I would say that neurologic cases on our emergency service are probably one of the most common that come in and I would I would always urge owners to to just come in and get seen by a veterinarian and and have them determine whether it's emergent or not, because there's a lot of there's a lot of neurologic disease that doesn't necessarily need to have medication right off the bat um, or have an MRI right off the bat. And a lot of times we can wait and they get better, like strokes. Um, but there's also a lot that can turn south very quickly so i think if you ever suspect neurologic dysfunction with a sudden change it's always better to have a veterinarian take a look um, just to be certain and then then give the okay to go back home and watch it if you feel like there is a slow decline in the function of your pet at that point it's probably a little less emergent and you should make an appointment um, with the neurologist if you can um, rather than rushing into the er
1: what about a seizure? Seizures like come out of nowhere mm-hmm. and freak people out terribly. It would freak me out. So yeah. if your pet has a seizure, is that an emergency or or when does a seizure become an emergency?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, too. Uh, I would say if your pets never had a seizure before, I would call it an emergency just to get checked out because you, you don't know if they're going to have more seizures afterwards. Or if there's going to be any lasting effects from the seizure. If you know your pet, some of my some of my chronic patients, they're idiopathic epileptics. They know their pet's typical seizure, so and so protocol. So. He always has a seizure for two minutes. He's abnormal for 10 minutes afterwards and he pops back up and he's his normal self and he won't have a seizure for another three months. Those owners who are who know the deal and the pet's on medications, I say don't come in, don't call me, just write it down. You know, make sure you keep a log of it. But if you know if your pet has not had a seizure before, it is it would freak me out too. And I would I would urge going into an ER just to get checked out. Doesn't mean we're gonna have to keep them overnight. Doesn't mean we're going to have to do an MRI right away. Oftentimes we don't, especially with just one seizure, Um, but it's definitely good to get looked at.
1: And then certainly if a seizure goes on for a long time, which what would a definition of a long time be?
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the most common um, things I hear from owners too with a seizure, I say, how long did it last? And they said, ah, it seemed like in age or it seemed like an hour but usually usually and what i tell people is five minutes so if a seizure is going over five minutes and um you are not seeing a stoppage to it that's when you got to rush in Uh, that's going to give a lot of people angst uh, because you can't be with your pet all the time right so you're not going to be able to see that uh, potentially if it happens. I would say that the the commonality and, and how often we see a seizure less than more than five minutes is is pretty atypical. Um seizures only happen in about two and a half percent of the dog population. And of those seizure pets, the greater than five minute seizure is pretty rare. So I wouldn't lose sleep over that fact, but certainly that's a that's a absolutely a cause as to you know rush in right away.
1: So changing a little bit um let's just I love to ask people how they decided they wanted to be a veterinarian yeah,
2: yeah. i I don't know when exactly it clicked I'm not one of the I remember a bunch of my classmates at, at Cornell were oh I've known since I was five i I wasn't I wasn't one of those I've always loved pets um I had dogs I had cats growing up um so I was always an animal lover. I actually wanted to be a dentist until, <laughs> until college. I knew I wanted to go into the medical professions. Uh, I knew that the challenge of you know taking a case, solving a puzzle, piecing it out, and and helping um, a living being was something I wanted to do. And then I think ultimately in college, I, I tried to explore and I was, you know, I remember I was volunteering at the cat shelter in, in Tompkins County. And I, I, I remember just thinking, eh, let's just work with that. Like animals, this is more enjoyable. <laughs> it's, it's I, I'm sure working with humans would have been good as well, but I, I just love animals so much. So that tipped me over the edge, but I definitely uh, liked the profession for the challenge of it.
1: And then why neurology?
2: Yeah, that I think that has to do more with my my brain and the way it works because it, it I was always very uh, yeah. math heavy. Uh, yeah. Oh
1: well. Okay. <laughs> no pun intended. No
2: pun intended. <laughs> um, the I was always very math heavy in 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 high school and college. Uh, my sister's a math teacher, and. And the way that neurology works is it, it really is a puzzle. So you have these specific problems in your in this limb or this eye, and you have to put the pieces together and sort of mathematically come to a conclusion about where that problem is. So that that piqued me first. I, I my first year of vet school we took neuroanatomy, and one of the kind of one of the the more well known famous veterinary neurologists, Dr. De La Hunta. Mm-hmm was, was from school. And so I think his, his kind of legacy just sits there and they're very neuro heavy and everybody likes it there. So there's a, a good support system. So that peaked me. And then I, and then I did some rotations on the service at school and saw that you get to do both surgery and, and these interesting medical cases. And you, so you get to kind of use your brain and, you know, piece together those puzzles with the medical cases. And then on the other hand, you get to do surgery, which is, um, a little more, you know, uh, working on cars type, type things, you know, you're fixing something. It's, it's straightforward. I need to go in here and I need to fix this. And so that really appealed to me to have the the best of both
1: worlds. So talk a little bit about, we have about a minute left. Talk about, um, how the residency process works. Like what, what is, how'd you get to a residency and where's it going to get you in the end?
2: Yeah. Um, so the purpose of a residency is to just kind of focus in on only neuro. So you become so specialized and and probably to a fault to some degree, um, but you basically spend. So the internship is your general year. You spend a lot of time doing different disciplines, building up your your base, your framework. And then you go into a three year residency and so that I'm in my third year now. So it's four years since I've been out of school and you're just only neuro all the time, all neuro all the time. So you're reading MRIs, you're doing surgery, uh, you're working on seizure cases and it's constant. And so you just get immersed in it so that. Um, Because some of these cases are are fairly complicated and can be tough to treat and diagnose. And so by the end of it, you feel incredibly comfortable um, working on those tricky cases. And so that's why I've been happy to have my residency in New York City, where we just see so much and so much variety.
1: Well, I think that's a terrific note to end on is, is that the residency experience here in New York City is really an intense but wonderful one. So I want to thank our guest, Dr. Semino, for being with us today on Ask the Vet. And everyone is looking forward to your online pet health event on January 12th. It'll be at 6 p.m. And I'll talk about how our people, uh, our listeners can sign up to attend that event. We've got room for everyone because it's on Zoom. And stay tuned because we've got another special guest coming up. So I hope you'll stay tuned in.
0: We're back with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus on Ask the Vet. Call now with your pet questions on Sirius XM Stars.
1: And welcome back to Ask the Vet. It's my privilege today to welcome William Gordon, Deputy Police Chief of the Greenfield, Massachusetts Police Department, to today's Ask the Vet program. We're going to talk about the role of comfort dogs or therapy dogs, but specifically therapy dogs for first responders. Full disclosure, I had the pleasure to briefly meet Deputy Chief Gordon in 2013, when the Animal Medical Center honored his St. Bernard dogs, Rosie and Clarence. I love that name, Clarence, with the coveted Top Dog Award. These amazing dogs, and let me tell you, they're not only amazing, but there's a lot of dog in these St. Bernards, and they were recognized as the nation's first comfort dogs for first responders. These dogs were dedicated to helping police, firefighters, and other emergency workers who are hurting from the trauma of their jobs. Since that time, Deputy Chief Gordon has been working tirelessly and has been instrumental in bringing police official comfort dogs into dozens of police departments across the country. Deputy Chief Gordon, I'm so glad you could join me today on Ask the Vet. And if our listeners could see you, because I can see you in your Zoom box, um, they would see that you are on duty and in uniform right at this very moment.
3: Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here, and I, I owe a lot to Animal Medical Center, so uh, it's it's great to be invited to your program.
1: So let's start at the beginning. How did the concept of comfort dogs for first responders get started?
3: Well, um,
1: it actually,
3: it started by accident. Um, Of course, I'm on duty, my radio goes off. Um, It started by accident. I I have PTSD and I have PTSD because of the things I've been asked to do for my job. And I started becoming, um, you know, in a really dark area and not enjoying my job and not enjoying my uh, off time. And uh, I started going to counseling and my, my counselor asked, what do you do? What, what brings you joy in life? And I, I told him, I said, not much, except of I'd love to work with my dogs. And they're like, well, why don't you start working with your dogs and doing things that you enjoy with your dogs? And I'm like, that's a great idea. So the, the very next week, they asked me to bring my dogs to my counseling session And they noticed how much my dogs were helping me, but we also noticed how much my dogs were helping other people that she was also uh, counseling Um, and how the first responders week after week really enjoyed not my company, but the company of Clarence (coughs) and Rosie. So uh, we started doing that. And then all of a sudden um, at the same time, the Sandy Hook school massacre happened. and, uh, And there was somebody there that knew that I worked with these dogs and how much, joy the dogs brought to people at the time that they were meeting people. So they asked me to go to Sandy Hook um, to the fire station, to meet the firefighters that were in a really, really sad situation. Um, and we, we went there and the whole mood changed. It was the first time in five days that any of those firefighters had a chance to smile it was the moment that they met the dogs. And we were like this, there's something here, this, this is working. And that's how it started.
1: So in addition to Sandy Hook, where else have you and your dogs been?
3: Well, right after Sandy Hook, if you remember, um, the Boston bombing happened. And that was about six months. And the same ATF agents that worked at Sandy Hook also worked with the Boston bombing. And they knew how well that the program worked at Sandy Hook that they asked us to come up and help the Boston Marathon have their next event, which is the 10K race, and help comfort people that were nervous about going on another run. So we came up with our dogs and helped at the Boston bombing. But then all of a sudden the word got out of how well that these, especially at St. Bernard, worked with first responders. Because, you know, first responders, it's a tough, they have a tough shell. And and when they see such a beautiful, rare dog they just have to come over and meet them so uh the word started getting out so know, unfortunately with all these other massacres and sad events throughout the country they the first thing that they called was for the dogs so we've been to boston bombing uh we were invited to go to las vegas and help the firefighters and an amr ambulance in las vegas we went to pittsburgh helped out with um uh, the massacre that happened in Pittsburgh at the synagogue, and then most recently in Washington, Washington DC, with the Capitol Police funerals. Matter of fact, our team is there right as we're speaking. I, I couldn't make it this year.
1: So that's a lot of distance to travel. And just reminding the listeners that I have foremost in my brain what these dogs look like because I met them in person, and they're like 140 pounds of dog. And there's two of them, right? Do two well, of them go?
3: You- I wish it was 145 pounds. No, they're 165 to 180 pounds. Um, so, yeah, they, they go on a plane. We have partner airlines that um, know what we do, um, and they have to sit by our feet, um, and they're not allowed to be in the aisles. And it's not easy, but with the rows of seats to have three rows, they kind of fit. But unfortunately, today, nowadays, the planes are really packed. So they have to go under my feet, and the pa- the the passengers next to me they go under their feet too. So it, all three of us have to have their our feet up all over the dog. But he usually curls up in a ball, puts his head on my lap, and and will be on the the flight the whole time that way.
1: So he's allowed to go in the cabin.
3: In the cabin, yep. Uh,
1: how come I'm never on those? I never get to go on a flight with a nice big dog like that. Oh, um- uh, it.
3: It's very comforting because I'm a, I'm afraid to fly. So it's nice to have my partner with me. Um, and often the uh, carrier will, if there's room in first class, they'll get us into a first class because the dog is big. So
1: Yeah, yeah. So when you go to places like the Boston bombing or your dog in D.C. today, what are they doing?
3: Really, they're being a dog. You know, dogs are, there's a, a human... Uh, bond that happens with a dog that's very hard to explain, um, and and although they're trained in obedience and they're 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 highly uh, excuse me highly trained in obedience and they're also trained in and how to take uh, the sounds of, of an emergency like sirens and you know they're they're trained all in that their real job is just to be there and and that the the Saint Bernard eyes. Just will melt into your in, into your their expression on their face will melt through your eyes and you'll notice that they understand what you're going through and and it's very hard to explain. People ask me this all the time. It just happens and and some people aren't dog people. Some people it doesn't work with at all. But if you're a dog dog person and you're in trauma, the interaction between you and the dog just makes everything feel okay. But if you were to look at, uh, you know, uh, what really happens is petting the dog lowers your blood rate. It brings down the uh, fight and flight syndrome and allows your body to realize that there is no fight. The fight is over. There's no reason to run. And, and, And all the effects of the fight and flight syndrome will go away when you're petting the dog.
1: See, I think your description is perfect. It's something about the dog's face because for me right. with the St. Bernard, it's kind of that fuzzy hair that makes a halo around them. Those big, kind of saggy eyes. And then the lips, I mean, they've got yes, great owls. lips. Yeah. And, and so it, you can't help but just you wanted to squish them because they're just so cute and so huggable um so it, it is um it, it is they're the right dog for the job you know
3: you bring up a good point when i first started in a career we had stuffed animals that we would put in a cruiser's um, and if there was a car accident, we'd pull out, you know, or something with a child would pull out the stuff, stuffed bear and they would be able to hug it. And really the St. Bernard is really just that. It's not a stuffed bear, but it's something to, to be held and hugged. Um, and, and we don't just do tragedies. Our dogs work every single day here at the police department and they go out to uh, mental health emergencies, people that have gone through trauma, um, crime victims, domestic violence victims, all get to meet the dog. It's, it's the highlight of our city. Uh, When when somebody uh, gets to go to the police department and sees our dog, they tell everybody. So it's 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 sometimes it's a lot, a lot of stress to go to a police department. But when a child or even adult hears that they get to meet Officer Clarence, it takes that stress away.
1: So talk about Clarence a little bit more. How old is he? Where is he right now?
3: Officer Clarence is in the, is the room right next to me. He has an office at the station. Uh, he's being, um, he's handled by, I, I was promoted, so I'm no longer the handler, but my wife happens to work here at the police department. So he was transferred over to my wife and it's my wife's full-time job is to, to handle um, Officer Clarence and to work as a community policing officer. Um, he's 10 years old, which is old for St. Bernard. Um, so we're kind of getting nervous. So we, we only work him a little bit. The highlight of his career was his recent trip to Washington, D.C., where he actually helped comfort the president of the United States. Uh, uh, President Biden got to hug him and pet him right after the funeral. So that was kind of like pinnacle of his career and kind of his retirement moment. But he does come out occasionally um, to the police department and um, and and still gets to do his regular job. It's just more like halftime.
1: And. You work with a group called Canine First Responders, which is a not-for-profit organization which offers comfort to people affected by traumatic events. Can you talk about that group?
3: Absolutely. So that's a, a, trauma, uh, um, a trauma group that is where is, is the group that has sent me to all of these places. Uh, the police department, uh, we, we work with our dogs locally, but the canine first responders that have gone us to the national tragedies. Um, and like I said, in fact, the, that group right now is working in Washington, D.C. for the January 6th event. Um, and that is a 40-dog team uh, um, group that is designed to uh, work with first responders or the public when there's trauma. So often it's uh, maybe um, a, a, the smaller incidents, not always these national tragedies, but in a smaller incident that, that uh, happens in town, maybe a funeral um, especially a funeral of a first responder; those are large-scale funerals, and they're highly uh, charged. Especially if it's a felony type of um, uh, murder that happened, um, and there's a lot of trauma. So, when the person that is, you know, is overcome with emotion, we're usually in the basement of the of the church, and then they can usher that person out of the public side and into the area where there's people like us and, and uh, critical instance stress management teams that were able to help the person with a one-on-one session. And a lot of times the, the dogs act as, a fir- as, a, as an icebreaker because people are afraid to talk about the emotions. So they come and they meet the dog, and then we're like, how are you doing? And then the person will then stop looking at the dog, look at us, and then we'll, we'll usher them over to a team of highly trained people that can deal with the trauma that, that the person's gone through.
1: So you said there's forty four zero dogs in this group,
3: approximately. Yep. Uh, and are 40, they ac-
1: across the country or localized in your neighborhood?
3: It's usually on the uh, we, pretty much on the eastern seaboard. Most of the handlers are in the northeast because that's where we started. This this team came out of the um, Sandy Hook tragedy, so um, we noticed with the Sandy with with that with that Sandy Hook situation now a lot of dog teams responded, but there was very little. Um, organization of those dogs and the the training and the vetting process of the handlers. Um, So we put a team together to to work on that. And then because most of us are police officers or firefighters or EMTs, then it just kind of made sense that we will help the first responders and the private teams. There's a lot of private teams out there. um, They'll help the community. So we're usually based behind the scenes where people aren't seeing
1: us. Well, I also think that the that the issues for the first responders must be different than issues for the community in a tragedy like that. Is that a, a, a correct thought on my part?
3: Absolutely. Um, the, the first responders, they didn't have a choice whether to go to the scene. They didn't get to we talked about fight and flight a little bit. They didn't get to have. The, they didn't get to run away. They had to run into the situation. So they see these situations. Our bodies see this situation as a fight. It's not necessarily a fight, but the 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 body has to prepare for themselves for that that critical incident, um, like it's going into a fight. So um, so the, there's a lot of adrenaline that's built up. There's a lot of emotion that's built up, um, and like I said, petting the dog kind of releases that. Um, and and gets them into a calmer area. But the other thing about first responders, they're not allowed to just go home. They have to go back out into the street and do their job again. So we we sit there and even if we're we're with them for 30 seconds or five minutes, we recharge that first responder so they can go back and do their job and and protect us all.
1: So is uh, Officer Clarence the only dog in in your precinct or do you have more than just Officer Clarence?
3: We have Officer Clarence here. Uh, We had a dog, Officer Donut. Officer Donut, unfortunately, uh, had um, bloat at at a young age. So right now, he's medically retired. Um, We're hoping that he survived um, and he's recovering. But uh, it takes a lot. He went through a trauma himself. So we have to see how that's going to pan out. If Officer Donut um, doesn't uh, work out, we have a couple other dogs on standby. We're we're looking at another St. Bernard. And we're also looking at a, um, a a labrador retriever, um, as a, as a third dog for our department.
1: Well, just I'll give you some free medical advice for whoever you have next. And that would be that if they have a surgery to spay or neuter the officer, you should ask that their stomach get tacked in place because that helps to prevent them from having a a twist when they bloat. And the twist is what's really bad. So we just have a few seconds left.
3: You're right. And that's exactly what we did with with Donut. So Ah, he is is tacked now, but he was just too young at the time. It was unusually young.
1: Yeah. yeah. At one, uh, probably 20 seconds. Is there anything else that I should have asked you that I didn't about your great work and program?
3: Well, we, you know, we were the first department in America to do this. Uh, and right now there are dozens and dozens, uh, dozens of, of departments in Massachusetts alone, never mind across the country that do this. So I would I would say to your, your listeners that if there's a police department in your area and you think that that police department could benefit from a dog, start talking to the chief. And I bet you that they've even heard of our program. If not, they're already starting their way. But they, a lot of times, departments could use a little extra money to get their program off the ground.
1: Uh thank you so much to Deputy Chief William Gordon for taking the time to join me here on Ask the Vet today and give our regards to Officer Clarence. Uh, if you want more information and photos about K-9 Officer Rosie Clarence and Donut, uh, you can just simply Google them and you can read all about them. Uh, and thank you again for being with us.
3: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: Sit back and let's listen to today's animal news.
0: It's time
3: for Animal Headlines, the biggest
0: animal news from across the world.
1: First, you've got to check out the top 10 animal videos for 2021 from the Smithsonian National Zoo and Conservation Biologic. There are giant pandas sliding down snowy hills, screaming hairy armadillo named Sherman going bananas over a new toy, and a common merganser playing duck, duck, go. Just Google Smithsonian National Zoo, to get those top 10 animal videos. And if you like ducks and you live in New York City, right now we are duck central. On Sunday in New York Central Park, I saw mallards of course, but also wood ducks, buffalo heads, hooded mergansers, northern shovelers, northern pintails, and the hard to find scaps. So there were tons of ducks on the reservoir in Central Park. If you have time to go out, take your binoculars and start identifying ducks. Our second story is about the human-animal bond. And there are two new published books that speak to this connection between people and animals. First one, Sona, the story of a dog who taught me about love by Panchita Pierce is a heartfelt story of the love between a clever Cogger Spaniel named Sona and a very busy journalist. Love that lasted for 15 years. And these, these books are really a good addition to today's show where we talked a lot about the bond between um the officers and the dogs and first responders the other book is my hero theo about a police dog who went beyond the call of duty to save lives this book is by gareth graves and it's a moving story of one man and his heroic dog and the unbreakable bond that sees them through all of life's challenges And finally, this is actually quite interesting. Well, at least for me, who really likes birds a lot. There is an album featuring 53 bird songs of Australia's most endangered birds. And on the charts, it has soared past the sales of artists such as Taylor Swift and Marco Buble. The birds are the artists and the composers on this album. The album was created to coincide with the release of a book the Action Plan for Australian Birds by Charles Darwin University and BirdLife Australia. This Australian bird song album is now number three in the Australian Recording Industry Association album chart since its release in early December. The album is a platform to get people to appreciate what we lost until unless some kind of action is taken to save these rare birds of Australia. If you have a pet health question, just pick up the phone and leave me a message. It's that simple. I'll answer your questions on next month's Ask the Vet, and the number to call is 866-993-8267. We're going to take a quick break, and when I come back, we'll do news from the Animal Medical Center.
0: We're back with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus on Ask the Vet. Call now with your pet questions on SiriusXM Stars.
1: Welcome back to Ask the Vet here on Sirius XM Stars Channel 109. We've had a jam-packed show today and don't have enough time to get to calls from our listeners. But don't forget, if you have a call, leave us a voicemail at 866-993-8267 and I'll be sure to get your questions next month. News from the Animal Medical Center. AMC was founded 111 years ago as a temporary clinic to provide veterinary care to animals whose owners could not afford it. And Today, AMC continues to give back to the community. In 2021, AMC donated nearly $5 million in veterinary care through its charitable programs. If you're interested in our charitable programs or or need financial help to take care of your pet, you can find a list at amcny.org and put community funds in the search bar. AMC's one hundred and twenty plus veterinarians, and that includes the charming Dr. Samino, who was our guest today, work across 20 specialties and services and manage sixty thousand patient visits each year. That equals one hundred and sixty pets every day coming through AMC's doors. The Schwarzman Animal Medical Center believes all pet parents should have access to accurate pet health information. And so AMC has a pet health library available free and on our website, which is amcny.org. You just have to click on the little blue ribbon that will take you to the pet health library if you want to look up information about your pet. The Usedan Institute also presents free monthly virtual pet health events, and our guest today, Dr. Samino, is going to be the presenter this month. He's going to talk specifically about intervertebral disc disease in the dog, and you can sign up for that by logging onto our website, which is amcny.org, and put Usedan events in the search bar. You have to register, so you get the zoom link to attend dr Semino's talk but um, it, the event is free and doesn't cost you a thing and i guarantee you you're going to learn a lot i want to thank my special guest dr Semino and dr deputy police chief william gordon and i want to thank all my listeners callers And a special shout out to everyone who's downloaded the Ask the Vet podcast. You can find it on any podcast platform. We are all grateful here at AMC for your support. Don't forget, if you want me to answer your question next month on the show, just call 866-993-8267 and leave me a voicemail message. And that call is toll free. If you want to check us out, we have a Facebook page, The Animal Medical Center, Twitter and Instagram are AMCNY. Everybody stay safe, and I'll be back next month for the Ask the Vet Show here on Sirius Stars XM channel 109. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in.